And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, then he is nothing. He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Those of you who are more astute probably realize that I loop back into chapter 5 here uh, to cover some of the material that Marty did, because for some reason, when Erasmus or whoever came up with these chapter divisions, I don't think he necessarily put them all in the right place. And I think to keep the context, we've got to go back to verse 24 here. Once upon a time, there was a, there was a grandfather who was having a conversation with his teenage grandson. And they were discussing temptations and how to deal with them and how to resist them. And the grandson asked, Grandpa, do you ever feel like you're being pulled to do something that you know is wrong? Well, that's a good question. That tells me that you're growing in your Christian faith. Well, how do you know that? Well, if Jesus were not in your heart, you wouldn't worry so much about some, doing something that's wrong. To answer your question, yes, I still feel that pull, even after all these years living with Jesus as my boss. The Holy Spirit's in constant battle with my desires to go my own way. It feels like two dogs using me for a tug-of-war rope. So, Grandpa, which dog wins? The one I feed. Well, as Marty pointed out last week, the works of the flesh are many and evil, but the fruit of the Spirit is beautiful and desirable. And as followers of Christ, we're in a war, a war that lasts for our entire life on this earth, a war with an enemy that seeks to divide and conquer and destroy and kill. There's no truce in this war, and there's no ceasefire. And the question is, which pull on our heart will we feed? Works of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit? Will we sow seed to our flesh or to God's Spirit? Now, some have taught that the flesh, that term, is referring to some part of our being that's removed. If we fast, if we pray, if we deny ourselves, if we punish ourselves even, if we do something. If we do the right spiritual things often enough, these people hold, then God will surgically remove the flesh and we can live a life free from sin. And John Wesley and his followers teach this. But the flesh is not part of us. The flesh is us. God treats us as a whole being. And being in the flesh means, especially in the book of Galatians, a person under the control of his or her own ego, which is too weak to resist the temptations to live, the temptation to live as if I are the center of my universe. And so we're in this situation. If we look at creation, starting there, we see that Adam, before the fall, was in a situation where he was able to not sin. But they fell to temptation, soon in the book of Genesis, as you know, and it came into this situation here where they're not able to not sin, which is where we are outside of Christ. 
Everything that we do turned in on ourselves, it's sinful because it comes from a heart that's unclean. But if we become a Christian, then we move into this category. We're now in the position as a Christian of being able to not sin. You may disagree with that, but that's the situation that we're in. If we truly actually believed and acted in accordance with our beliefs. Eventually, when we leave this earth, when the age to come appears, we'll be in a situation where we'll be not able to sin, which we would love to be. But in the meantime, we're in this battle, and the battle is over our control center. It's over our heart. It's over our mind, will, and emotions. And it's a pitched battle all the time between the flesh, which is me under my own control, me with ego enthroned and in control, versus the Holy Spirit, who also is pulling and wants to maintain control. When you ask Jesus Christ into your heart, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you. And as a result, whoever wins this tug-of-war here ends up determining what choice we make. Because we always make a choice between two alternatives based on the one that appeals to us the most. You can divide you can, any situation in life. You can break it down to a decision is always based on what appeals to you the most. The idea here is to strengthen the spirit, and then your decisions become more and more like what God wants versus relying on the flesh and making choices that are poor choices, that are self-centered choices. So the, that's the battle that we're in. Because outside of Christ, we are just too weak to resist temptation. <laughs> Most of the time, we don't even want to. And we're stuck outside of Christ. We're stuck dead in our sins because the law kills but the Spirit is what gives us life and enables us as a Christian to be able to not sin. Of course, not until we see Jesus face to face in our resurrection body are going to be in a situation where we'll be not able to sin. So what does it mean to be able to not sin? Well, in verse 24 in chapter 5, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's telling us that we're no longer in bondage to the flesh. The, the, the power of sin has been broken. Which reminds us of what he said back in chapter 2 in Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So if we're crucified with Christ, why do we keep trying to feed our egos? Why do we insist on following our own way when God has delivered us from that path? Now, our task is to take God at his word, of course, and act in accordance with this new nature that he gave us. And since we've crucified the flesh, which you hear de depicted as a one-time act, we have to leave it securely nailed to the cross and not yield to the temptation to rebel against our gracious Savior. Rebelling and going back to the cross once again is like going back to just polish the nails, still crucified, but we keep sometimes going back to that in whenever we disobey, whenever we sin. This is Paul's graphic description of repentance, of turning our backs on the old life of selfishness and rebellion. And although death by crucifixion was a long process, the end result was always certain. A commentator from back in the 19th century, a guy named John Brown, said it this way, Crucifixion produced death, not suddenly, but gradually. True Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh while here below, but they have it fixed to the cross, and they're determined to keep it there until it expires, without going back and polishing the nails. 
So our, our attitude to our rebellious natural self needs to be starve it. Our attitude toward the Holy Spirit is to feed him. We're to be led by the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit, we're told here, and to keep in step with him. So the Spirit does the leading, but we do the walking. We walk in step with the Holy Spirit, not with our old way of life. Remember, that's what just got crucified. And Paul says once again, in, in, back in chapter 2, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So living by the power provided by God's Holy Spirit is the only way we're ever going to be able to say no to our fleshly nature and yes to allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work in us, to bear fruit that actually glorifies God. So the question boils down to, and what Paul's going to answer here is, well, how do we know that we're walking in step with the Spirit? Now, some voices will tell us that the first result of walking in the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, it's a warm heart, it's a burning in the bosom, followed by supernatural signs of some sort, like, uh, like healing or speaking in a heavenly language or deliverance from sinful habits or something maybe equally mystical or deep. And if that's your hope, then Paul's here to dash it. <laughs> Such things might happen, but Paul tells us that if you're keeping in step with the Spirit, you will abandon conceit, he says. You'll abandon provoking one another. You'll abandon envying one another. And you'll seek ways to show love, the first fruit of the Spirit, to one another. Love is often considered something abstract or maybe emotional, but we're going to see that to Jesus and his apostles, love involves things we do to and on behalf of others. It's other-oriented. So how do we walk in step with the Spirit? Well, we're given a command. We're given a command with a warning. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I'm sure glad Paul let me off the hook. This only applies to those who are spiritual, and I'm not there yet. I don't qualify. I don't feel like it. I mean, if only I had a good example of spirituality to compare myself to. On January 5th, the liturgical churches, such as Roman Catholic Church and Anglican churches, celebrated the feast day of Simeon Stylides. Now, he was a devout man who lived in about, oh, I guess about 430 A.D. or so. About age 30, he decided that he needed more isolation than he was getting in the monastery in which he was dwelling. So, because there are just too many worldly temptations in the monastery. So he found an abandoned stone pillar about 10 feet high and about 3 feet in diameter near Aleppo, Syria, and he decided he's going to live on top of that until the temptations and the flesh subsided. And he lived on top of that and other taller pillars. Eventually he got to one that was about 50 feet high, but still about 3 feet across on the top. He lived on pillars until he died 37 years later. People supplied his meager food, but he never came down from his lofty perch. You can't get much more spiritual than Simeon, right? But Simeon admitted he never got relief from his temptations. I mean, a lot of people tried to copy him, but none of them found relief from temptation either. He didn't find the peace that he was after by isolating himself, even while fasting and praying and spending his entire life, day and night, summer and winter, on a tall stone pillar. His devotion is admirable, but the example is the opposite of what Jesus and Paul taught. 
Now, I'm not Simeon, but I too am plagued by the battle over temptation over my heart, and I, and I lose the temptation all too often. I mean, I'm not spiritual enough to do what Paul is here commanding. He just doesn't understand my situation. I can't do what he's asking here. Sorry. I have to tell myself this, too. Because we often get Christian maturity mixed up with being spiritual. Spiritual means living under the control of the Holy Spirit. Confessing all no sin and relinquishing control of my life to Jesus on an ongoing basis is just like breathing. In the Ephesian letter, it's called being filled with the Spirit. So if you are a Christian, you are automatically spiritual. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. He doesn't un- dwell in unclean things. He lives in, he makes things holy when he's present. You are spiritual when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. Maturity now refers to how well you feed the Spirit versus your experience with the flesh. How well you feed with, with a, live on a Spirit-permeated diet. Joyful obedience to our gracious Lord. So to be mature really means to be able to see the fruit of the Spirit more and more consistently in your life, especially in response to life situations and and how our attitudes and our actions are being controlled. So if we think that verse 1 doesn't apply to us, we're missing Paul's point entirely. Verse 1 is for every one of us, not just for some spiritual superhero, not for the cyclops, but for servants, not for the beasts, but for brothers, and not for superwomen, but for sisters. So in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is going to teach that the way to be truly spiritual is to one another each other. He's going to tell us in verse 1 that spiritual people restore one another from sin. In verse 2, that they bear one another's burdens. Verses 3 through 5 talk about that spiritual people consider others more important. And then in verse 6, spiritual people, spiritual people share with one another, all the one another's. So let's look at the first one. Spiritual people restore one another from sin. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So Paul's addressing this right off the bat to Jesus' family members, to all of us who have surrendered control of our lives to Jesus, to Jesus' brothers. But we saw in chapter 5, that the flesh wars against the spirit for control of our will and our intellect and our emotions. And sometimes we get caught from behind, kind of like a sneaker wave at the beach, and you fall flat. And the word transgression that's used here is not the normal word for sin. He's not referring to an act of rebellion here. He's talking about an individual who has slipped or lapsed. So what's he really referring to? Well, I think there's a particular application to the Galatian churches here as well as a general principle for us to utilize as well. Now consider those who fell under the sway of the Judaizers, who came behind Paul and taught that, well, yeah, there are more than just the four spiritual laws. Sure, you need to confess your need of a Savior and yield to him personally, but the fifth law is you have to become a Jew to become fully acceptable to God. And apparently that was very attractive to people. People succumbed to that, as you can tell from Paul's attitude as we've seen already in this book. So Paul's concern for his audience, for the people here, has been great, we've seen, for the people who succumb to the teachings of the Judaizers. And he's written a very direct letter, very direct letters we've seen, 
And I'm sure that many who had become followers of the Judaizers are recognizing the error of their ways. Now what do they do? To admit their error and to return to the church now is a major blow, especially in a, a, a culture that's based on shame and honor. They're going to lose face in the community and in the church if they return to the church. So what are they going to do? They can't just come back to church and say, never mind. So Paul is telling the Galatians that those who want to repent and return need to be restored, not rejected. Restored means return to its original condition. So it's used actually as a term in healing a broken limb. I mean, if a person has a fracture, a physician is needed to make sure the limb is straightened and held in place until it heals. And it's done gently, but firmly. And the process will cause pain initially, but the pain eventually wears off. You can ask Linnea. The Galatians, who had fallen for the tempting heresy of the Judaizers, but wanted to come back to fellowship, needed firm but gentle treatment to be restored to full fellowship. And those who did not yield to the temptation to follow these Judaizers needed to be gracious to those who'd been led astray, recognizing that they'd basically been swept from behind. And this also applies with individuals maybe within that we know, too, who have succumbed to various temptations out there that kind of took them by surprise and actually led them off the path, whether it be following some kind of a political party, some kind of a social justice thing, or something else. They, they, you know, they, they've drifted off the path, they've been swept up from behind, and maybe they feel like they really can't come back. And we Christians are really not noted for being gentle with someone that we feel has let Jesus down or let us down. We're often guilty of shooting the wounded. Or we just ignore sinful behavior in someone else because we really don't care enough to confront him or her with what we see. Or we tell one of the elders that it's their job. Or we just simply tell others what we see, real or imagined, and just keep feeding Mark Zuckerberg and his cronies. So we can see how Paul handles people who have disappointed him. You can see this in the book of 2 Corinthians where he talks about individuals who offended him, and he said, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your, reaffirm your love for him. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So Paul responds in gentleness and kindness, fruits of the Spirit. And without the Spirit, our kindness might look like it's directed towards others, but often it's brimming with self-love and fueled by, by pride and, and fear of man. And without a connection to the true vine, we can only show false kindness. But what's false kindness? Well, false kindness is Judas Iscariot feigning concern for the poor while he's skimming off the top of the money bag. But true kindness is generous. It, it flows freely, it flows impartially to those we disagree with, maybe to those we hardly know, and to those who can't thank us. And true thank, true. Uh, Kindness really looks odd to the world that we live in. It means meeting the needs of people without the thought of any kind of recognition. It's the Samaritan who reached out of his own pocket to meet the needs of a suffering enemy stranger. So in God's true kindness, he meets the needs of his, of his creation and even provides for those who hate him. But though he causes, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, God's kindness extends to his family in a special way. And we see this 
in Paul's letter to Titus in chapter 3. Where it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So he's saying we don't need to be kind people in order for God to save us. God knows exactly what kind of unkind people we are, and he met our needs in Christ. And our Savior's kindness, as we well know, Jesus' kindness, it's not lukewarm, it's not selfish, it's not just utilitarian. And you can see this at the time of his greatest suffering. Here he is suffering horribly physically as well as mentally and other kind of anguish we can't even imagine. So while he's bearing the curse that we deserve, the curse for humanity, what's he doing? He's making arrangements for the care of his mother. He's speaking kind words to a dying criminal on the cross next to him. He's praying for the forgiveness of those who killed him. That's real kindness. And that's the kind of kindness that God gives us through the Spirit. That's what the fruit of the Spirit of kindness is actually referring to. So we see that walking in step with the Spirit means restoring one another from sin, but also spiritual people bear one another's burdens, it says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So here's a basic assumption that Paul makes. We all carry burdens, loads that are hard to lift and difficult to carry. And the intriguing thing about our burdens is that we have a hard time admitting it, often even to ourselves. I mean, some of you are experiencing financial burdens, some are experiencing health burdens, some are facing family burdens, some are going to deal all the above. And the list goes on, often unnoticed even by the rest of us. Because we tend to think of burdens as things as sickness and unemployment, loss of a loved one, uh, loneliness, rejection, and so on, and people who bear them as the victims, which is true. And if we are full of Christ, we will be about the business of bearing those burdens with them. Well, Paul showed us in verse 1 already that burdens, which include trespasses, also include individuals who are not just victims, but culprits. So we should probably divine, de define a burden then as does anything that threatens to crush our faith, whether a situation that threatens to make us doubt God's goodness or a sin that threatens to drag us down. So if a Christian brother or sister is weighed down or menaced by some burden or threat, Paul's telling us to be alert to that and to quickly do something to help. Don't let them be crushed. Don't increase the burden. Make them lighter for people. Some of you may wonder what you're supposed to do with your life. Well, here's one idea. It's a vocation that will bring you more satisfaction than winning the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, if something such a thing actually exists. Develop the extraordinary skill of detecting the burdens of others and devote yourselves daily to making them lighter. What a great vocation. Doesn't pay well, at least not in monetary terms. And he says, in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. That's an odd phrase in a book. It already had said things like, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Or, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, all of a sudden, you fulfill the law. So maybe we just exchanged the burden of sin for the burden of holiness. Maybe we've just been freed from the curse and burden of the law of Moses just to be burdened down with the more radical law of Christ. Is that what he's getting at? No, not at all. 
Moses gave us a law that couldn't change our nature to comply with the law's requirements. It didn't conquer our pride and rebellion. But when Christ summons us to obey his law of love, he offers himself to slay the dragon of our pride, to, to change our hearts, to empower us by his spirit, and, then, and therefore to fulfill his law. But what is the law of Christ? Well, Jesus put it this way to his disciples right after Judas betrayed him. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The commandment looks an awful lot like a law. So here's the law of Christ. And God left us here to serve just as our master did by laying down our life for our brothers and sisters. And of course, we really can't help bear your burdens unless you really let us know that they, that they exist. If you keep them a secret, we're never going to know. We'll never be able to bear that burden with you. And we Christians sometimes act as if we're deep sea divers. Here we are in the murky waters of sin, but we have the protection of the diving suit of God. And we have the lifeline that goes up to the, to the great white ship above. And at the same time, you have your life in Christ. I have my life in Christ. And here we are with all of our lifelines going up. And if we need help, it has to come from above and not from a fellow diver. We can only wave to each other and, and write notes to each other, kind of like our current government restrictions. But contrast that with seeing yourself as scuba divers on a beautiful reef in Belize. Amen. Supposed to be a great place to retire. We are free to enjoy what God has created now and the beauty of it, but we keep an eye out for each other. There are a few sharks there, but you know, we need to keep an eye out for each other. We always have at least one buddy with us to share the beauty, but who's also there in case we get into trouble or if we need help carrying our overflowing bag of abalone back to our 40-foot catamaran. So our life in Christ's body is not just my life and yours. No way. I mean, I know the vertical relationship is fundamental. But what I see all too often, starting with myself, is an over-focus on the vertical, so we're just unwilling to share our burdens with a brother or a sister. When that brother or sister could actually help us carry our burden. Which leads us into the next section, which tells us that spiritual people consider others more important. For if anyone thinks he is something then he is, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Well, verses 1 and 2 address those burdens that, that Christians are to help others bear. Now, verse, these verses deal with smaller loads that we alone have to bear. And, and the words that are here are different. The word for burden in, in verse 2 is really, it's heavy. It's something very different. It's a load. It's different in ESV, but it's actually it's a lighter load. It's something that's much smaller that one person can carry. So these two facets of the Christian life really are not contradictions. I mean, they're complements. I mean, it's only when we can distinguish those burdens that we alone can bear that we can properly help others bear their own burdens. 
So in effect, verses 3 through 5, I think, enable us to deal with the beam in our own eye so we can help others with the speck that's in theirs. Because verse 3 is a rather radical attack on pride. And it's given as the basis for the gentleness that we need in order to lovingly confront a member of Christ's family. And it comes as a warning. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. People who are fascinated by their own abilities and attributes are only fooling themselves. I know who are old enough to remember a uh, famous heavyweight boxing champion named Muhammad Ali. Not noted for being humble. Uh, you know, still, uh, what, he floated like a butterfly and slung like a bee. But some of his terms that he, that he used were actually pretty arrogant. And there's a story that's told of him being on an airplane and the plane being ready for takeoff. And the stewardess tells him to get ready. Everybody get ready for takeoff. And his humble response was, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The stewardess was right there, came back and said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> so sooner or later, people who think they're something they are not end up crashing back to earth. So Paul's assessment of why people won't confront a brother taken in sin, or why people do it without meekness, is just the opposite of our 21st century assessment. I mean, if you don't have enough assertiveness to confront someone, or if you do, but you do it in an arrogant way, most contemporary preachers and counselors and so on will tell you that your problem is a lack of self-esteem. But the Bible says that your problem is, if you think you're something, when you're actually, in fact, nothing. We just end up being too proud to help with someone else's burden. But you might say, oh, no, no, that's not the reason. That's not the reason. The reason I don't confront people is not because I'm, af- is because I'm afraid, not because I'm proud. Listen to this word of the Lord from the book of Isaiah, chapter 51. I, I am he that comforts you. Who are you to, that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens? Who do you think you are to be afraid of mere man when I am your God and I have infinite power? The fear of man may feel humble, but really it's rooted in pride. And that's what the Lord says. So the word of God here remains. Our failure to fulfill the law of Christ is because we think we are something, he says, when we're nothing. Now Paul is speaking morally here, not physically. I mean, what he means is that apart from the special grace of God, In us, we amount to a moral zero because of our sinfulness. In Romans 7, Paul says, There dwells in me that is in my flesh no good thing. And Jesus in John 15 says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So as far as moral capacities are concerned, a man without Christ can say one thing honestly, I'm nothing, and God be merciful to me, a sinner. But then when God is merciful and Christ enters our life and enables us to love, we ought not to start talking about self-esteem, but Christ-esteem. I am crucified with Christ, remember. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So we need to break out, really, of the shackles of our assertive pride, or maybe our timid pride, is not to increase our self-esteem, but develop a radical confidence 
and the incomparable Christ who came into the world to save utterly unworthy sinners. When you're looking wholly to Christ, totally to Christ for your forgiveness, for your joy, for your love, the sinner whose burden that you're going to help carry will know that you don't come in the spirit of pride. And that's the warning that Paul has here. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each man will have to bear his own load. Now think about that for a minute. Verse 5 looks an awful lot like the opposite of verse 2, where we're supposed to bear each other's burdens. Now we're supposed to bear our own burdens. And verse 4 sounds just like the opposite of verse 3. Are we or are we not supposed to boast in ourselves? So here's what I think these verses mean. When you measure the value of your own activities, don't take the work of others as your standard of measurement. Don't get puffed up because their brother falls, because our pride loves to see it when somebody else fails where we stood firm. And Paul says, stop feeding your pride by comparing yourselves with those who sin. Don't, don't measure your moral achievements by those, who <clears throat> by those of others. I mean, measure them, test them by the laws of Christ. And then whatever there is to boast about will not be owing to the inferiority of somebody else. Well, can we boast of anything in ourselves? Well, ten verses later, in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast, the same word as in verse 4, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1.31, he said, Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And in Romans 15.17, he says, in Christ Jesus, I have a reason for boasting in things pertaining to God, pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So the cross of Christ and the work of his spirit in our hearts evaporate all the pride from our boasting. The cross and the spirit really orient all our boasting to the, bo to the grace of God and transform what we would take as maybe personal credit into a joyful exaltation of what God in his mercy does through us. So I'm not here to take the credit. I'm here to deflect that credit to God. Remember there was one being back in ancient history before the world began probably that actually took the, 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 the praise that was due to God to himself rather than passing along. An angel named Lucifer. So he's saying don't fall into the same trap. So when he says in verse 5 each man will have to bear his own load. It's not a contradiction of verse 2, which says, bear one another's burdens. I mean, verse 5 is given actually as the basis for verse 4. It starts with that verse 4, because. Because the word burden in verse 2 is a Sherpa-sized backpack. Well, the load in verse 5 is a light day pack. And he's saying, don't ever try to lighten the load of your own sin by comparing yourself to a failing brother or sister. Why? Because you're going to bear your own load in the judgment. I mean, when the final assessment comes, and we're all measured by the law of Christ, no one's going to make your load lighter by being worse than you are. You're going to bear your own load in that day. No comparisons. The plea we hear so often is, but, but I was as good as John, or, or I wasn't any worse than Jane are going to fall on deaf ears at the judgment. 
So don't bolster your pride, he's telling us, by comparing yourself with others. You're going to bear your own load. Sharing a burden does not get you any gold stars with God. Well, finally, he comes to this verse 6. Spiritual people share with one another. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Now, some people look at this verse and say, well, this means you should be paying the preacher. Well, that might not be a bad idea. That's not what it means here at all. Why would he drop that unrelated thought in the middle of this letter? What he's saying is that the one who bears the burden and holds his brother or his sister up is obviously teaching the word to that person. That's part of it. They mutually, as a result, they mutually share in all good things, all the noble, the moral, the spiritual excellencies. They're in God's words. They share them together. So the implication here really is just this. If you're helping to restore another individual, to help them bear another person's burdens, you're involved in a building process. You pick up family members by confronting sin, calling for confession, repentance, prayer, and a, and a return to the word. You hold them up by an accountability relationship in which you get under the burden and you help them carry the burden. And you build them up then by sharing back and forth all the good, excellent moral truths that flow out of the process of your now teaching God's word to that individual. You might give someone a book. You might send them a link to a podcast. You might bring them to church with you. You might be in a Bible study with them. I mean, I have the great privilege of preaching and teaching God's word. But Marty and I are not the only ones who teach the word. We have several forms of Bible studies going on each week with different groups. In each case, the word's being taught. Burdens are being shared. When you're interacting with your children in your family devotions, when, when you're sharing your insights with a friend, you're teaching the word. And he says, if you're on the receiving end of teaching in any of its forms, verse 6 instructs you to share what God is doing in order to build up the teacher. Teachers are often plagued with the thought, did it actually do anybody any good today? Was all that preparation worthwhile? So teachers, teachers he says, need encouragement too. Well, once again, they deflect the credit to God. The danger is still there to take credit for what a person does when you see somebody helped when you're ministering to somebody. The, the temptation is to take the credit for yourself. I did a great job, didn't I? Rather than deflecting any praise that's due back to God, who is the actual source of what you did anyway. I'd like to close this morning with a story. The story is from um, Brendan Manning's book, Abba's Child. So Brendan and his wife, Rosalind, I don't know if you, Brendan is a, well, I'm going to give his biographical sketch. Uh, he's a wounded warrior, uh, former priest. Anyway, he says, uh, Brendan and his wife, Rosalind, were on vacation in New Orleans and walking along Bourbon Street. And they were confronted with a young woman in her, in her early 20s with a very radiant smile. She approached the couple and she pinned a flower on their jackets and asked if they would make a donation to support her mission. Some of you may not even realize what, well, anyway. <clears throat> when asked what her mission was, she said, the Unification Church. And so Brandon said, so your founder is Sun Myung's moon, so I guess you're a Mooney. 
Yes, she answered. So, in the book he says, she had two strikes against her. First, she was a pagan who did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as her Savior and Lord. And second, she was a mindless, witless, naive, and vulnerable kid who had been brainwashed by a guru and mesmerized by a cult. You know something, Susan, I said? I deeply admire your integrity and your fidelity to your conscience. You're out here tramping the streets, doing what you really believe in. You're a challenge to anyone who claims the name Christian. And Rawls and his wife says, reached out and embraced her, and I embraced the two of them. Are you Christians, she asked. And Rosalind said, yes. She lowered her head, and we saw tears falling on the sidewalk. A minute later, she said, I've been on my mission here in the quarter for eight days now. You're the first Christians who have been, ever nice, who have been nice to me. Others have either looked at me with contempt or screamed and told me I was possessed by a demon. One woman hit me with her Bible. This is how restoration begins. Jesus, the human face of God, calls us as his representatives to gently reach out to people who've been overtaken by sin, sucked into a cult in this case, and to serve them in love, leaving the results to God. Our job is to serve. Our job is to deflect any praise back to God. Our job is to bear the burdens of other people, especially individuals who may be overtaken by something they don't even realize. Let's just close in prayer. I thank you, Father, for your presence in our lives, individually and as a body together. I thank you, Father, that you have not left us alone. You have not left us just with a, a pipeline directly to you. We have that, yes, but, Father, we also have something even greater. We have a fellowship. We have a family. We are part of a family. Father, help us to bear one another's burdens, to be able to help another person carry a heavy load. Help us also to be willing to divulge that load that we are carrying to someone who really could care and, and carry that burden with us through prayer, through study, through uh, even crying together. Father, would you enable us to function as a body, not just as a bunch of individuals, but as a body. And help us, Father, to forestall, to see any roots of pride that may show up there and to serve you gladly, recognizing that your Holy Spirit dwells in us and his fruit includes not just love, but kindness and gentleness. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.